0: Welcome to the Feminists for a People's Vaccine podcast, a space for imaginations, discussion, and feminist analysis from the Global South. In this creative journey, we approach the tough questions brought to light by the pandemic. Join us to look at this once-in-a-lifetime event as a passageway to imagine a fair and just world for all.
1: Hi, I'm Molly Jagpal and I work for DNDI and I take care of communications in Southeast Asia. And today I have the absolute privilege of having a little conversation and a chat with a very respected and dear friend of mine, Yo Kling. There you are. Now tell us, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? So I'm Malaysian, and I'm a lawyer by training,
2: and I'm living in Malaysia. Today, I am working as the executive director of Third World Network, which is an international policy and advocacy organization started
1: by Malaysians, and we are headquartered here in Malaysia. When I was looking at your formal CV, Yokling, I was quite terrified by your credentials. I saw this background in law. I saw Cambridge University pop up. And it got me thinking, I'm thinking, how on earth did you go through that process of doing law, something that we identify with people going into big corporations? How did you end up fighting for justice?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's very interesting because when I when I applied to go to law school, I didn't want to be a lawyer. In fact, I didn't want to go to university. I wanted to be a journalist. I was always interested in environmental issues in school, and and uh, and, and so I wanted to do something different. Uh, So my uncle said, look, you know what? If you want to do something different, go and get trained as a lawyer. So I applied, I went in and I have to say that was probably one of the best decisions I made. I had a couple of amazing uh, professors who mentored me. And then when it came to uh, wanting to do my master's because I was interested in teaching and and there was a scholarship to go to Cambridge. um, And my mentor at that time in the law faculty said, you know what? Why didn't you apply to go to Cambridge? I said, no. By then, I was very politicized about colonialism. I said, I'm not going to the motherland of imperialism. You know, no, I, I want to stay here. I was already very involved as a volunteer with our Friends of the Earth in Malaysia. I was really getting exposed to the communities, to the reality of my own country, because I'm an urban kid, right? Uh, but this mentor of mine said, look, if you want to change the world, Go to Cambridge. Be challenged. Be in a place where people are not thinking like you, right? And when you come home and you have a degree with the Cambridge name, it doesn't matter what you say. They will give you a hearing. But when I came home, I realised that in the end it has to be not just my voice, but the voice of those of us so-called from the south, from the developing countries, wanting to have our own pathway. as what our future, what our development and what our people should have the
1: right to decide. We're all familiar with the right to health as a human right, but we don't have that much familiarity with what exactly are intellectual property rights. Could you just walk us through that?
2: So we have something called the Paris Convention on uh, the Protection of Industrial uh, Property. And that is a treaty Back from the 19th century when it first started and it's been changed you know uh, over the years but that is really what created the idea of what we call a patent right a patent is a uh, is a monopoly for a temporary period given to uh you know to reward inventions which are industrial property uh, and you can choose in the country whether to join or not and if you do join you were given the freedom to choose which sector you may not even want to include to give, for example, a patent. So in the late 80s, there was a move led by big industry, pharmaceutical, biotechnology, chemicals, agribusiness, you know, to sort of say, you know what, we today are the companies in Europe and North America and Japan, we have the technology because we are the richer countries. Most of them got wealthy because of colonialism and taking all our resources for centuries. And so because they had more wealth, they were more developed, and they could have more technology advantage, they said, okay, now that we have this advantage, how do we use this technological advantage to really control markets, right? And so they wanted new rules that would give them new rights. So in 1995, we had coming into birth, into implementation, a new agreement, which is a very long name, It's called the Trade-Related Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights which we commonly will now uh, hear it called the TRIPS agreement. Now, when that agreement was uh, being negotiated, together at the same time, with four, five, six, seven, eight, nine other agreements, all at the same time, most of our countries were not aware because we didn't even think of pharmaceutical patents in many of our countries. It was unthinkable. So the people involved in the negotiations were very, it was not equal negotiations. I think some of the active countries from, from the developing world were Brazil, India, Argentina, a couple of the African countries who had an idea what was going on because they were having their own industries coming up. And so they were the ones who were blocking and trying to save the day, right? But the most, most of the other countries had no clue. And so in 1995, this agreement came into legal life. And what does it do? It says that, first of all, it created the term intellectual property rights. Once you're a member of TRIPS, you are obliged to follow one similar set of uh, rules. And one of the most important for patents is that from now on, all products and all technology and all processes, once you meet the requirement, you give it and you give it for a minimum of 20 years. And that's how we began to see the story of medicines around the world. If you are a member of this treaty, you are obliged to give it. But it's not an absolute monopoly. There are ways you can actually balance between Yes, legitimate interests of those who are real inventors and creators, but also public interest in public health. And today, for us, uh, much of our work in ThoughtWorks Network and many of our civil society activist community, we try to avoid the word rights. We say intellectual property. If you look at the history of patent law, it is about a privilege. Because what are you getting, right? Because you are an inventor, you have done all these things, and you, you qualify, depending on your rules in your country, the state, the government representing the state, Says, I will give you a temporary monopoly. It's a social contract between society and the, and the inventor, right? But by turning away from the concept of privilege to the concept of rights, you change the whole uh, you know, psyche of how the world will look at uh,
1: what these things do and what, what impact they make. If some psychologically somehow it becomes acceptable. You know, us us ordinary citizens of the world begin to believe that it's okay because if it's a right, somebody somewhere is accountable. Yes. And public interest will always be factored in when it's a right. It does. It does change the the way we then look at uh, whose rights, what rights. So that's
2: why when we wonder, why is it that it's so hard to get governments to, uh, they may have signed also treaties on human rights, yeah? Why is it so hard for us to enforce our human rights in our national courts or to get our parliament to pass laws. Why is it so difficult? At the same time, it's so easy the way they pass laws on patents and trademark, and, you know, and, and make it even tougher and tougher for us and make it more and more you know, uh, favourable to, to, to private uh, companies. That's because governments, most of the time I would say unknowingly, have created enforcement rights so that they can use that as a stick when we need to do
1: the right thing. Uh, we find ourselves, you know, suddenly having a lot of uh, barriers. So when we talk about TRIPS flexibility, yeah. are they housed under that then? Yes, it's under, it's in the TRIPS agreement itself. So can you give us an example, Yokeling, of when when that was exercised and used in reality? I'll start with the one of the most
2: important, uh, the first flexibility that we think is really important and countries must exercise it. Now, when do you get a patent, all right? First of all, that product or that process must be an invention, okay? Now, what is an invention? TRIPS does not define it. It's up to us in our national law to define what an invention is. And before you give a patent, uh, a claim, that invention must be three things. It must be new, it must involve an inventive step, and it must be something that you can uh, use or apply. We call it industrial application. So it's something that can go to the level of being an in industrial production. Now, these are three. It's, this is not created uh, by TRIPS. It's part of the, the development of patent law, and it's just incorporated into TRIPS. Okay, So it's new, inventive step, capable of industrial application. You must have all three satisfied. What each of these means is, again, up to each country's law. That is the most important flexibility. Because if you get it right, you are not going to be giving so many patents when they don't deserve it, right? And in the field of pharmaceutical and medicines and all that, we see such a lot of patents given, which as even as an ordinary lay person, you, when you explain to people what those uh, patents are that create 20 years monopoly, people are shocked, all right? I'll give you a quick example. Something came up originally as a syrup. And then I change it from a syrup to a a different form. I turn it into a tablet or a capsule. I get another 20 years. Um, I have to take three or four or five tablets if I'm an HIV uh, AIDS patient, right? And every day to take five different things or three or four is very difficult. That's why you don't comply and you give up, and, and that's a problem, you know? You have to comply when you take HIV treatment, and it's for life. So then you begin to say, okay, I could put two or three of them into one tablet. So instead of taking three, I'm taking one. This is what we call combinations, right? You could get, if your, if your law allows it in your country, you can give another 20 years for turning the two, three pills into one pill. So so, so that is an important flexibility. i give you a very good example. Argentina, in 2012, passed new guidelines for how do you assess and examine a patent application. Is this something that should be given a patent or not? So they looked at, this is chemical-based inventions, right? So the the, uh, Ministry of Health, the Ministry of Industry, and the National Institute of Industrial Property, which is your intellectual property uh, arm, they got together, they did this consultation studies, they adopted these, these new guidelines, and when they implemented these new guidelines in 2012 itself, The number of patents given for medicines in that year in Argentina was 54, 54, okay? Mexico has about the same size of market as uh, Argentina, which means the same number of people are going to be affected, your cause, etc. And you know how many patents were granted in uh, Mexico in that same year? 2,500.
0: Mexico granted
2: 2,500, Argentina granted 54. Now both are members of the TRIPS agreement, but they use the flexibility very differently. One of the reasons why the, the, the number of patents just drop dramatically with the new guidelines in Argentina is because they have very strict standards that limit the patenting of a bunch of things, right? Compositions, uh, what I just said about combinations, you know, two, three pills put into one. Even doses, if I come up with 20 milligram, right, uh, tablet, 20 milligram means in your tablet there are 20 milligrams of the active substance that actually has the medicinal value. And then maybe 10 years later, I say, actually, I'm coming up with now 40 milligrams because of whatever, whatever, is more effective, et cetera. So if your country allows it, the first 20 milligrams as a dosage, if your law allows it, that's new and inventive, all right? You get 20 years. Then 10 years later, you say 40 milligrams is more effective for the body, you know, to be able to get this medicine to work better. So if your country allows it in its law, the 40 milligrams get another 20 years, all right? This is what we call in the patent world uh, evergreening, you know? <laughs> it's an evergreening pattern. It goes on and on and on and on. We you know, with different patterns. And you
1: basically what is the aim is to keep your monopoly in the market. I wouldn't call it evergreening. I'd call it a never-ending disaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe evergreening sounds too nice. <laughs> yeah. So th- that's all fascinating and a bit scary, Yokling. But what I want to ask is that, can you tell me in what circumstances do we use patents or are patents issued? Can you just explain that again, please, with more clarity? Right.
2: What the TRIPS agreement says is that yes, you give a patent, uh, and this is really patent law that has been incorporated. Uh, it has to be an invention, has to be new, has to involve an inventive step, and it has to be uh, of industrial application. All right. And this is important. The third one is because if something could be new. You could pass the test of new, right? You could pass the test of having an. Uh, Exercise an inventive step. But if you are not going to work, the term is work a pattern. That means you're not going to manufacture, you're not going to uh, actually use the technology or make the products. Uh, and then and you just want to lock up. You cannot, right? Or you are at the stage where it's something new and inventive, but it's not ready to be used at an industrial level. That means it's not capable of being turned into a product or a technology that can serve society. So at that stage, you don't get a patent. This is important because if it's not capable of industrial application, it means that other people can continue doing the research because you can have 10 different uh, teams of people working on trying to solve a a problem or or get a medicine for a certain disease, right? So you want to balance so that people can can continue working. So if it's not of industrial application, you you won't get a patent. That's very important. So these three have to go together, right? Um, Now, this... Like I said earlier on, this is a number one, what we call flexibility. So you decide in your national law, what is new, what is inventive and uh, what is of industrial application. And then you get an application, right? Uh, Let's say Molly, you are a pharmaceutical company, a biotech company, you have been working on a particular medicine. When you apply for a medicine, uh, for a pharmaceutical patent, not even medicine, a pharmaceutical patent, you actually haven't got the medicine yet. It doesn't exist yet. Because the way this whole system is constructed, if I'm working on the substance, chemicals, okay, we're only talking about chemicals at this stage, I'm working in the lab, I'm looking to see whether this particular uh, chemical has a potential, has an active ingredient, something in this, this substance has, uh, can, can, can have some activity that could be developed into a medicine. So let's take a very uh, uh, well-known example that we take every day. You know, We take paracetamol, right? Uh, there's Panadol. Panadol is actually the brand name. So the original was called Panadol. That's the name of the company that first started doing it. But the active ingredient is paracetamol. And because there are no more patents around this product, it's a very old product. That's why we can go to a, to a pharmacist and we can buy paracetamol. We ask for paracetamol, right? And generic companies, many people are making this all over the world. That's why it's so cheap. So what happens is, when you actually discover a potential active substance, that's when you file a patent. So let's say I file in the year 2000, okay? And I get my patent approved in 2005, the 20 years start running from 2000. So it goes back, so the whole period, okay? But what it does is effectively, it's given you a minimum of 20 years, which is a long time in this world, okay? Every day uh, you don't have competition in the market, you know, you, you don't get cheaper medicine. So, what you first get is this. And then you will go and start, and you continue doing your R&D and developing that active ingredient, that compound, that chemical molecule into a medicine, okay? But as long as I have my patent approved, in that period, nobody, no other manufacturer, no other, you know, can can, can go in, even you know how to make it, you can't, you can't do it because, and then I will file. That's why one medicine is not one patent. You will file first the basic compound, which is the primary, and then you file process, patterns, because you may have different process. you say it's new and inventive. Uh, in the old days, before trips, you can choose, you can, you, maybe you want to give patterns only for process, but not product. So Molly, you and I and five other uh, people are working in to get to this medicine in five different ways. Okay? But maybe your way is uh, makes the medicine, uh, you know, absorb into the body uh, faster, better, and we may have different, uh, you know, advantages. So if I can show that my process is new, inventive, different from yours, then you can get a process patent, I can get a process patent, but the medicine in the end, the product is not patented. But once you are required to patent the product as well, even though we may have three different ingenious ways of getting to that uh, that product, then then the other process uh, people drop off. So this is why it's it's a problem. That means you actually kind of kill innovation sometimes, right? No incentive. The first to file gets monopoly. Now there is an exception, this is another flexibility. If you are doing research, right, for example, uh, there is a patent over a uh, okay, which is a very important uh, drug for hepatitis C and cures, right? We've all been working with it, many of us. So it's been, it's patented in Malaysia. DNDI NDI, Drug for Neglected uh, Diseases initiative that Molly works for, they got another you know, uh, potential uh, uh, drug that works with sofospovir. You need these two drugs. And we want to do a clinical trial, but we need sofospovir, which is patented in Malaysia. Now, there is an exception in TRIPS. If you want to use a patented uh, product, but it's so expensive, so I can get a generic that's cheaper from another country, I can bring in a generic, Okay, without the permission of the patent holder. So if it's for research, I'm not doing any commercial level production. I can bring in a cheaper version of the same drug, which is what we did in Malaysia, right? We imported uh, Sophos from Egypt, which has very high standards and did not give a patent on Sophos whereas most other countries did. And so Egypt is the only place where you can get generic, which is independent of the patent holder. Okay, so we imported it and it's perfectly legal. So for research, clinical trial, you have an exception. Once you get to the commercial stage, you you can't, right? So even if I can, and, and we hear a lot of time the pharmaceutical industry say, why are you so worried? You know, we don't have absolute monopoly. If you want to do research, you are free to do research using the generic version of these chemicals, et cetera, et cetera. So what's the problem? You can go on and do your own research when we say that you are killing innovation with the patent system. But think about it. If I do research on medicines, But I cannot commercialise because at that stage it's no longer allowed without the consent and permission of the patent holder. What's the incentive for
1: me to do R&D and innovation? So you've kind of come full circle there, Yokeling, because earlier on you talked a little bit about how patents... Um, people believe that patterns can stimulate um, inventions and almost are an incentive yeah. for R and D and innovation. Yes. That looks good on the wrapper, but once you get into the packaging, that's where yes. the complexities are.
2: That's right. That's right. Then you see how it actually works and plays out, right? Then you see what it's a complete opposite. That we realize that there is no evidence really to link having all these fantastic uh, protecting of the of the private rights, you know, private claims, that it will bring you more innovation or it will bring you more investment. Because sometimes they say things like, uh, if you don't respect intellectual property and you don't respect patents, then I as an investor, I'm not going to come to your country to invest. In 2006, already, all right, the World Health Organization set up a commission on intellectual property, innovation, and public health because this was already becoming a problem. You have studies from the Federal Trade Commission of the United States. There are so many academic studies, studies from government think tanks, from government agencies, showing that the actual number of new chemical compounds, like real, you know, the, the new things, is really not that many. There have been very few new compounds. We're working very old compounds. We're going back to looking at nature and biological products. Remember the word discovery? A lot of uh, discoveries were made by going to talk to Indigenous communities. Local communities that for long, long, many, many generations, millennia, they've been using herbs and all that, right? It's all in the literature. You look at the uh, drug discovery and development, okay? A lot of it is go and send ethnobotanists, go and do, you know, and, and then people who do all this research, they publish. So there are very fundamental questions about, in this chain, when is it a discovery? When are you working based on other people's knowledge and we are building? Because it used to be that... All this drug development was very much collaboration of scientists in public institutions, etc. Right? It's not something that just comes up from a company's lab. Even today, what have we learned from the vaccine for COVID-19? Because vaccines actually are not a profitable product, except seasonal flu, because you know every year you're going to have to do it, right? So you know it's a, it's a captive market. But why are there no vaccines for HIV? It's hard. It's a hard work, but it's not a lot of money being pumped into it. So, for so the COVID vaccines had huge public money pumped into it. The whole of Moderna's, you know, uh, product really billions came from the US taxpayer. The Oxford uh, Institute, you know, what is what we call now the uh, the the AstraZeneca product. A group of academics did a brilliant study. They showed that something like ninety eight percent. Of the funding that has been researching on this particular uh, vector, this way of bringing uh, the vaccine, uh, you know, to work in this particular way, it's not. It didn't happen last year. You know, people working on this in this field know that these coronaviruses are out there, so they have had twenty years of scientific research, right?
1: This team in Oxford, and they were funded predominantly by taxpayer and philanthropy groups. That makes it even more wrong, though, doesn't it, Yokeling? The t- yes, public because taxpayer, innovation, I mean.
2: yes, yep. yes, exactly. And then the same state gives the privilege call a right, called a patent, and then they come in charge you I and mean, you pay double, three times. That's why there's a big funeral going on on vaccines in the, uh, in the industrialised countries. So if you look at the whole history of innovation, the best innovation, the best things have been discoveries or sharing of knowledge. You look at polio, yeah? Two scientists were working on polio vaccines in the United States, right? Funded by philanthropy and public uh, money back in the day. There were two scientists and both in both cases, these two polio vaccines that were developed were never patented. And one of them, you know, Salk, Professor Salk, he, he, he was interviewed, very famous interview, where he was asked this question, you know, uh, about, about patenting the, the vaccine. And he said, can you patent the sun? Because it was unthinkable. If it had been patented, just think how the world will be we may not actually be on the uh, talking about polio eradication today because polio vaccine is very cheap. Anybody can make it. So you contrast polio and you look at COVID nineteen, and you can the root of it is not that deep. It's actually quite quite clear is the intellectual property uh, system.
1: On the subject of shining the light, it's got to go beyond civil society, governments, and industry. It's so important to engage the general public, which is where I think COVID has been a real eye-opener for everyone around the world. Look at the disparity. Why are drugs so expensive? Why can't we get the vaccine? How do you feel about how kind of it's blown the roof off the house now with COVID and access issues, right? I think because uh, from from the build-up, you know, over the exorbitant
2: prices and the profiteering. I mean, you see some of the recent, you know, United Nations reports, you know, coming out in 2017, 2018. They really use the words profiteering, rentier, you know. So it's no longer something that uh, some CSOs and patient groups are are fighting for. I I think it really, this is one issue, you know, uh, that has really... uh, a bit of a tsunami, you know, is happening also because of COVID, right? The fact that we have South Africa and India taking the lead to put a proposal on the table in the TRIPS Council in the WTO to say let's suspend, you know, uh, the enforcement. It was unthinkable about a year ago, two years ago, you know, it, it was October in 2020, right? Now, it didn't just happen overnight. It's because these countries went through the experience of what happens when you have no access, Okay. So the fact that these countries, and today we have what? We have something like 63 countries, including India and uh, and South Africa, who are co-sponsors of this TRIPS waiver, we call it. And this is, again, allowed in the WTO system. Any agreement of the WTO, you can have a waiver if there are circumstances which you can justify. It's an inbuilt thing, right? So we have 63 countries which are official co-sponsors. And another maybe 40 countries that are given support. It means they say, so we have 100 countries, right? They're all developing and least developed countries. Now, the Biden administration has come in because of the campaign is very, very strong, you know, of civil society in the United States as well, because it's part of that big fight over exorbitant prices and the unfairness of the system, which makes the taxpayer pay two or three times, you know. But the Biden administration is saying we will accept some temporary, you know, suspension for vaccines only, The waiver is talking about all medical products needed. It's not just vaccines. Uh, If we find, you know, we we need to cure, millions of people are getting sick and more will get get sick if we don't control this. So every medicine that is being, possibly can be used now is being tried out. And many of them are surrounded with patents, all right? Masks. Uh, diagnostic kits because you have to get diagnostic kits are also patented and they're very expensive right so the whole range of products so the product range is very wide the United States say only vaccines so this is a fight it started not every week they are having meetings in Geneva former heads of states the Pope you name it you know the, the campaign for, for for equity in vaccines is, is enormous so the European Parliament has also come out to say we have to, we have to support this waiver. But the European countries are also split. In the south, the south of Europe, <laughs> you know, you have uh, Spain and Italy, where they have shortages. They support, you know, in principle. Germany is represented by Mrs Merkel, even though she's no longer the Chancellor, but she has taken a very hardline position to say that we cannot rock the boat with intellectual property because if we do, then the system is going to collapse, basically, and there will be no innovation and, and blah, blah, blah right? So, uh, so there's a fight within Europe, uh, but, it's, but the US has shifted a little bit. The battle has started, but it is not just about the vaccine issue. It's about the rules of the game. It's about the system.
0: The Feminists for a People's Vaccine podcast is produced by Dawn, Development Alternatives with Women for a New Era, and TWN, the Third World Network. Today's episode was edited by Alice Hurtado and engineered by Ernesto Sena. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Banita Nayak Mukherjee. See you on the next episode.